welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Walmart, an author and journalist who has specialised in transport for the last 30 years. In every episode, we aim to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories, policy developments and interviews across the world of transport. In this first episode of Season 2, we'll bring you up to date with some of the big stories that have broken over the summer. And with me is my co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades in studying policy developments in transport. So, Mark, what are we going to look at this week? Hello, Christian. Today we have three huge stories which have come to the surface and very much into the wider public consciousness over the summer. We're going to talk about what happened with National Air Traffic Services and the crisis in air traffic control. We'll also be having a look at the developments with London's ultra-low emission zone and its extension to the full Greater London boundary. And of course, we'll be returning to our cliffhanger story from the end of season one, the consultation on the closure of many hundreds of railway station booking offices. So the first thing we want to take a look at, Christian, is the story about National Air Traffic Services and the enormous difficulties experienced by passengers uh, returning home from holiday in many cases only last week. What's your take on all of this? Well, I think there's two extraordinary aspects to this. And the first one is that a system like that can go completely uh, dead, completely wrong, uh, so quickly uh, and almost instantly. Um, and begs questions about the safety of aeroplanes that are up there. I mean, if the air traffic control system goes, presumably it's very difficult to control the planes up there. And so it seems amazing that there wasn't a better backup system, but apparently they were worried about using the backup system because uh, they thought it might be a virus or something and they didn't want that infected with the virus as well. I don't really buy that. The second aspect of this is overcompensation. Now, the Prime Minister, Richie Sunak, said, oh, well, the airlines should uh, pay compensation. Now, I hold no particular brief with airlines. They're kind of uh, private companies that uh, generally make a, a healthy profit. But one does have to say that it's not their fault. It's the fault of uh, the uh, National Air Traffic Control System. And uh, that is semi-privatised. The government owns a majority share uh, but some of it has been sold off to uh, private uh, shareholders. It does seem to me that, you know, they should be paying the compensation for the total uh, mess that uh, this system has got into. And finally, I must say, I'm sceptical, as I think most of the population are, sceptical about whether there isn't kind of some major force involved here, quite possibly hackers, quite possibly uh, malign, given that we are, uh, you know, semi-participants in a war with Russia. You know, is it not rather coincidental that then one of our major kind of computer-based systems uh, collapses? And so obviously I have no particular knowledge of that, but I do know that most of the people I talk to are sceptical about this idea that it was just one bit of rogue data. I think we should probably say that all of the authorities concerned have been at pains to stress that nobody was at risk in terms of their safety over all of this. Um, but of course, uh, 
you know, one is entitled to be sceptical. I don't, about I don't that buy view. that, actually, Mark. I mean, I mean, you know, what if uh, all these planes were suddenly flying around, as it were, dark and, and on their own initiative had to land? Um, uh, you know, it doesn't entirely convince me. I mean, I, you know, I'm not somebody who's scared of flying and I'm not going to be scared next time I fly, but, you know... One has to ask questions about that, that's all. And also, at the time that we're recording this, we're still waiting for uh, the full explanation from the regulatory agency, the Civil Aviation Authority, which is being published shortly and which will be uh, hopefully revealed to the public by, in Parliament by the Secretary of State for Transport. So this may well be a subject we'll be returning to I'm in sure our next it will episode. Be. I'm sure it will be. Also, a big story at the end of August was the extension of Greater London's ultra-low emission zone, which has been introduced by the mayor, Sadiq Khan, uh, and which has, I think it's been fair to say, was a, a subject of controversy as we went into the summer break, and it continues to be so as we come out of it. What's your view of the developments here? Uh, well, I think it's very interesting that maybe three or four months ago, indeed, before the Uxbridge by-election, if you'd mentioned ULES on the radio, people said, what, what's ULES, right? And now the whole world is supposed to know what uh, ULES is. And it's uh, become a, an important part of the culture war. Uh, you know, Richie Sunak has uh, actually even uh, now announced uh, reviews of local traffic neighbourhoods and said that council shouldn't be able to introduce things without kind of checking with their uh, with their uh, constituents. But in fact, um, one should point out that actually councils are democratically elected the last time I looked and um, they could be booted out at the next election. So I, I don't think any of that uh, particularly makes sense. But clearly uh, the Tories are using a transport issue as a major weapon to hit Labour and indeed the Greens and the Lib Dems with. And that's interesting in itself because transport issues generally don't kind of pass muster as major political issues. And, and this one has. And it's interesting to really look a bit underneath the bonnet and see why uh, I think that they've got it wrong. Um, I wrote a piece in The Guardian uh, uh, about three or four weeks ago uh, about uh, this and about uh, the fact that Richie Sunak is using it as part of what he says is the war on the motorist. But when you look at it, first of all, the Uxbridge by-election was actually not uh, really decided by ULEZ. I mean, it was a very difficult seat for Labour to win. They nearly won it. Um, yes, maybe some votes might have gone the wrong way uh, because of ULEZ, but, you know, it, 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 I don't think it was necessarily the, the, the absolute deciding uh, factor. But it has now entered pol the political uh, realm as the big issue. And that's what's interesting about it. We're going to return to this, uh, Mark, I'm sure. that You know, ULEZ has now become kind of a wider political issue. And the other reason why it's a mistake from Richie Sunak's point of view is that outside London, there are a few kind of ultra-low emission zones and uh, you know, mostly introduced without much uh, of a huge fuss. Uh, but, you know, the vast swathe of voters across the country are not affected by this. And even in London, the, the, the ULEZ had actually been introduced by uh, Sadiq Khan and it had already been uh, extended out to 
the North and South Circulars. And this was only just an extension into the really outer bits of London. But, you know, very few people who weren't affected before will be affected. And very few drivers, uh, you know, 90, 95% of cars are actually compliant, will be affected. So I don't think this is the big issue. And I somewhat suspect, Mark, if we're doing this podcast um, in, in six months time or a year, it will be an issue that just won't come up. Of course, with you, Les, Christian, you mentioned that in a way this is a, an unusual uh, transport issue that's made its way fully into the public and political consciousness. But we actually have another one of those this summer, which is the review of booking offices at rail stations throughout most of England and the cl- proposal to close hundreds of them. Now, the, the consultation has ended in the last few days and the uh, assessments uh, are being made by uh, consumer watchdog transport focus on what all of this means but it's reckoned that there have been something like half a million responses from the public which is really quite extraordinary isn't it yes no i I mean uh, as you say it's a great time to be writing and uh, broadcasting about transport because uh, there's a, there's a lot going on, and uh, and indeed uh, um, these issues look as if they're going to uh, uh, go on for for, for quite a, a long time, and particularly uh, the this one, which um, uh, is really I think going to skewer uh, the Conservative government because they're not going to quite see how they can get out of this. What is extraordinary is uh, the amount of support that uh, the uh, anti-closure movement has got. Half a million people have signed up to it, but also demos at lots of stations, uh, huge kind of Twitter uh, storm stuff. Um, And I think it's really resonated. People like the railways and they like the, the ticket offices. And this has also then kind of attracted the ire of two groups of you know, uh, voters that the Tories really need, which is, uh, you know, the elderly uh, who, you know, can't cope with ticket machines or whatever, um, and uh, people with disabilities, um, you know, often the same people, they're also old, um, who are also completely uh, infuriated by the suggestion that, oh, they can just use uh, ticket machines. And of course, they got this completely the wrong way around. It might well be possible to get more people to buy uh, tickets from machines. But the way that the system operates at the moment is very difficult. And finding you know, what is the right fare for your, your journey and how do you get the cheapest deal and you know all the complexities of, of our rail network with two and a half thousand stations and uh, lots of different operators and all that. You know, it's, it's so difficult to navigate around as they should never, never have started to do this without, first of all, sorting out better ways to buy tickets online, sorting out the complexity of, of the fare system. And now they've got themselves in the right bind. And I can't see, uh, Mark, you might have some suggestions as to how they can get out of this. Well, they could adopt the uh, the screeching U-turn strategy <laughs> yes. and, uh, and, and, and hope that everybody's forgotten uh, uh, be- before the next general election. Somehow I think that's unlikely. And so the, the other two uh, potential strategies are to carry on regardless uh, and uh, risk incurring the wrath of the public, but in the expectation that 
everybody will be so impressed by the new uh, retail systems for tickets that nobody will really mind and it'll all be forgotten in a year's time. Or some sort of piecemeal approach where perhaps some of the more obvious and absurd closure proposals are abandoned. Like, like Euston Station, quite, Birmingham New Street quite, and so on. Quite. I mean, absolutely nothing. And, and we see a sort of process of creeping uh, closure at, at some of the other smaller stations. I, I suggest a fourth thing, actually. Mark. You go for it. Yeah, which is kicking it into touch. This is all too difficult. Um, we will uh, uh, have a review. Um, a review of yeah, the review. A review of the review. Um, we will, uh, you know, they've already extended the consultation period kind of a couple of times, haven't they? Um, and, you know, these are just suggestions. We've now, we're listening, we're, we're looking at this consultation um, and uh, we will report to you um, in the spring, maybe the summer, or possibly even the autumn. Um, and, you know, that's that's one, one way around it. That's um, a, that is a fourth possibility. Yes, that's a fourth possibility. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I think plunging straight into this and starting to close lots of ticket offices, it's, it, it's just good to... I mean, they don't need that, do they? They have enough kind of issues on their plate and they're kind of down in the polls already. Do they really need this? Well, funny you should say that because the future of booking offices does form part of the backdrop to the ongoing uh, wave of industrial disputes that continues to affect the uh, train companies in England primarily. Uh, and um, th that affects the relationship uh, between the employers and the RMT union. But of course, there's also an ongoing dispute involving the train drivers union, ASLEF. And you have some new updated information on that for us. Uh, yes, well, I, I uh, bumped into uh, Mick Whedon, the ASLEF uh, uh, General Secretary the other day, who's always very affable, always ready to talk, always ready to uh, give us a little interview. And uh, here's what he said. I'm with uh, Mick Whelan after a, a very pleasant lunch uh, discussing uh, all the matters around the railway and uh, I thought I'd just ask him a couple of questions about uh, the ticket office closures uh, which uh, have been put forward and the consultation actually ends uh, at the end of August. Uh, Mick, what do you think this is all about? I think it's a blind, poor attempt to save money without looking at the consequences of society, looking at the consequences of staff in the railways, and definitely doesn't look after the interests of passengers in the 21st century. And what, what's your concerns about them? I mean, uh, you know, obviously you might have concerns about uh, people losing their jobs. They're not necessarily your members, but they're railway workers. But what, what's your, your wider concerns about this? Well, quite simply, I've worked in this industry for 38 years. I believe we need a visible presence on platforms, ticket offices and trains because we don't live in a very polite society. And people seem to be forgetting the discussions that we were having prior to the pandemic where we were talking about the high increase in sexual assaults on the railway, where we were talking about county lines and acid attacks, we were talking about the increase in verbal abuse. Um, also, nobody in any of the companies has been able to demonstrate to me in any way, shape or form what the impact will be on lone workers such as train drivers going forward in all those locations whereby we stable trains or have to stand outside stations waiting for staff cars or taxis. No one's produced any risk assessments and no one's shown a need for this. No one can either show me then the hundreds of millions of questions that are asked every day at ticket offices about where do I get a ticket, how do I get a ticket that aren't represented in the ticket sales themselves. 
I do believe this is a false premise. I do believe it's the wrong thing to do. And I do believe it's going to make our railways inherently unsafe. So that's a much wider concern than just uh, losing the uh, sort of effectively uh, consumer-facing ticket office. Do you think there's actually a big safety issue? Big safety issue uh, across the board. We found out during the pandemic that people were using the railways as places to go because there was no one in the ticket offices and on the barriers, you know, using the trains, particularly younger people, because they had no, no alternative during lockdowns. And that process and those, those things have continued post the pandemic. We've got now lines of track where I get reports and resolutions from train drivers so they, so they don't want to drive on certain areas after eight o'clock in the evening. Okay, so uh, what do you think should be done? That Just that we drop all these proposals? Or do you think there is scope to change the function of uh, some of the rail workers at uh, some of these stations? Look, I have to believe that we can always look to do things that better. But that's not what they're proposing. And what I've seen is a series, I'll call them lies, because they are nothing else, from the ministers and little videos talking about redeploying people as front-facing staff to be more available for people. When, when we talk to the what the figures the companies are producing is, they're talking about thousands of job losses. So these people won't be going into other roles, they won't be more flexible, they won't be assisting the disabled, and they won't be assisting tourists, and they will not be assisting staff upon the railway. OK, just on one other tack, um, you know, obviously, we're hoping to have a general election in 2024, or at least uh, by January 2025. What are you saying to the Labour Party at the moment about what they should be doing about uh, the railways and what policies they should be putting forward? I'm confident in the policies of the Labour Party at this moment in time. They're talking about nationalising the railways. They're talking about electrifying the railways and making it a green centre for the future. They're talking about integrated transport. They're talking about growing the economy by using one of the four factors of communication, which is railways to grow tourism, to grow business and to grow investment. At this moment in time, I'm far more upbeat about what the Labour Party will do rather than the people that are sending my industry into a decade of managed decline. But so what does nationalising the railways mean, Mick? It means it bringing it back in the public ownership and running it for a greater good. And in that way, getting the best benefit of the investment that goes into the railways for the taxpayer, for the travelling public, but also hopefully for reducing costs to the passengers. And how do you think they should do that? Do you think Great British Railways is, is a good idea? I think Great British Railways, as written by Annie MacDonald in that paper, and which will be revisited and, and uh, reappraised by Lou Haig, will be a good idea. I think the Great British Railways, that puts us back to uh, the 70s and the decline of lack of investment and the lack of foresight, while the rest of Europe and the rest of the world is investing in night trains, investing in electrification, investing in reducing costs to encourage our economies to grow, is the wrong thing to do. While many of our listeners were enjoying their summer break, we, Christian and I, were still on duty for calling all stations. And we accepted a very kind invitation from HS2 Limited to visit two of their construction sites. It was a very, very interesting experience uh, and provided so much material that we're going to present our findings to you over two episodes of calling all stations. The first package is from our visit to the Colne Valley, where we got to see the construction work on the viaduct there, and also the tunnelling works. So here is our report. 
Mark Walker and I decided that we would do a podcast, or indeed probably two, from uh, HS2. Uh, and we're on a site visit uh, at the headquarters of Align, which is one of the uh, uh, contract partnerships. And I'm with uh, David Ems, who's the, uh, uh, who's the project client uh, director uh, for Align. So, um, David, just give me a little outline of what we have here as uh, a part of the HS2 construction uh, project. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so it's great to welcome you guys here, actually, to the to the South Portal office. So, we're just inside the M25 uh, near Maple Cross. Uh, we've got a site here um, that's got about 2,500 uh, uh, people on site. Um, it's about that's an amazing eight... car park. We're in the middle of an actually vast car park. Exactly. <laughs> we've got you know, 80 sized football pitches here um, on the site here. Um, lots of operation construction work going on. Um, we've got two tunnel boring machines that have launched from this site and they head north at the moment. Um, they've got 16 kilometres to go in total and they're about 12 kilometres down the line. So um, all the logistics is managed from here. So all the people, materials, uh, tunnel rings, they all get transported from here straight up into the tunnel um, to where the tunnel boring machines are. Um, here we've got a couple of factories on site here. One of them constructing the, the rings for the tunnel boring machine. Um, and the other one for constructing the segments for the Cone Valley Viaduct, which is a viaduct that's 3.4 kilometres heading south of here. So that's all happening on this on this one site. So that's, those are the two big parts of this, and presumably you're uh, building a few bits in between these, the, the tunnel and the viaduct? Yeah, absolutely. So all the material that's coming out of the tunnel um, is being actually uh, landscaped here in the South Portal area. So. We've got two million cube of material that's come out so far that's been landscaped. We've got another one million cube still to come out. And we're, what we're creating here is uh, Cricarious Grasslands, which is based on our western valley slopes. So this is kind of a new feature that we're going to be building that's got a massive 80% biodiversity gain for this area. So tell me about uh, a line. So this is a, a, a joint uh, venture between different construction companies. Um, and how much is the contract worth? Yeah, so, so Align JV, as they are, is a consortium of three contractors, uh, Buig being the main, and Sir Robert McAlpine and Falk Fitzpatrick are the um, other two other uh, parts of the JV. They have a design partner of Jacobs as well, um, so we're all co-located here. I work for HS2 directly, so between um, all the organisations here we've got, a, we've got a good setup actually, and we've, we've created our own identity here as well, which is really important that we're one integrated project team. Um, and so that's one of the things that actually streamlines the processes between the organisations and really does make a difference in terms of decision making and ensuring that we can maintain the programme on time um, and, you know, contain the cost within the budget envelope that we've got. And uh, what is the uh, value of the contract approximately? Yeah, it's approximately £2 billion contract here, which uh, on its own is a massive contract for any construction site. But uh, it's, the, it's the smallest of the four uh, JV's working on the main works for uh, phase one. So um, what about the local community because you know there was a, a by-election here a couple of years ago and uh, it was actually uh, HS2 and the, the sort of unpopularity of HS2 was definitely uh, something that uh, was was part of uh, uh, the uh, by-election lost by, by the Tories. Um, have you managed to kind of repair kind of uh, relations with the local community? Well, well, we like to think so. I mean, we do a lot in the local community here, either um, for our, our funds that we, that we do 
um, we do fund local projects. So within this, this just on this contract and the surrounding areas, there's a two billion, uh, two million pound fund that's been um, already released. Uh, we're also working with local schools um, to sort of promote construction. Um, we do things in the local community. I myself, uh, uh, three months ago, uh, was part of painting one of the local schools. Um, so that was that was really good and it helps us to bond kind of with with them. But there is a fantastic amount of disruption. One can't get around that. I mean, I'm uh, amazed by the size of this, even though I've obviously been writing about this for years. Um, it is just extraordinarily large. So there, there must be quite a lot of disruption. Yeah. Well, there, there is going to be some disruption due to the construction works, but um, but we certainly do a lot of work in the background to minimise that by working with the local community, local stakeholders, like the local authorities. Um, the site here is actually um, pretty unique because we've got new slip roads that we've constructed off the M25 that really supports and feeds the site. We don't use the local roads uh, for any construction, large construction vehicles or any construction vehicles at all. Uh, we've built a haul road that goes along the line of the route. So literally um, everything comes on, on from the M25 slips and then we can actually move along the route from here going south along the viaduct via a hall road. And so the big question, when will you be off-site and, and what will happen after that? Uh, we'll be off-site here, um, rough, roughly speaking, by the end of 2025. Um, and so, you know, that's pretty much on our original programme. Um, so we've, 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 we've managed to sort of contain the programme, even though there's obviously lots of um, other distractions and things that have gone on over the last few years. Um, COVID uh, obviously being the main one. Uh, we shut the site here for two weeks during COVID and then we restarted operations pretty quickly. So the overall impact um, was relatively minor. Um, however, it obviously did have um, impact in terms of the, the way that we were working. Slight reduction in progress due to the programme, but we will manage to recover that. Um, but there's a lot of protective measures that we put in place at that point in time. And then inflation at the moment is obviously significant across the whole country and in particular in the construction industry. Um, where we've seen uh, the price of steel double in the, uh, you know, in a six-month period, which, you know, is unheard of, really. In and who bears the cost of that? Well, HS2. Um, right. Is, uh, you can't uh, get around that. No, exactly. Someone's got to pay for that, and um, you know, it is a, a cost that's borne by HS2. Well, thank you, David. That's a great overview of uh, this project. And uh, uh, let's go round and visit some of the sites. Thank you. Um, so we're at the portal of the two tunnel boring machine. So as we mentioned earlier, we've got the two TBMs, Florence and Cecilia, which are now 12 kilometres down the line. Um, and they, they set off um, in 2021. So we've been going now for a couple of years. Um, so roughly they, they're travelling, as we said earlier, around about sort of an hour long average, around 60 metres a day. Um, but they're, um, they're actually peaking at somewhere around about 35, 40 metres a day. So what they do. Um, a hive of activity here at the south port, uh, the actual south portal. So you've got the uh, porous portal itself. So effectively, um, on each of the tunnel entrances, you've got two uh, porous portals, which effectively dissipate the um, the air pressure as the as the trains are going in and out of the, the tunnel. So it's got perforated top, effectively. So you can see the um, the construction that we've done on or started on one of the porous portals itself. We're just pouring the hood at the moment. Um, which is the first pour, um, you can see on the left hand side, um, which was a successful pour. Um, the reason it's so critical those hoods is because we need to get it right first time. If you can imagine all the logistics are going in and out of the tunnel, so you know, we've got people going in there, we've got, um, we've got, we've got the precast units for the, for the tunnel, we've got all 
sorts of plants and machinery going in there on a daily basis going backwards and forwards and so it gets quite congested going in and out. How, how far away are the TBMs at the moment from this point? They're 12 kilometres. Oh, 12 kilometres away, yeah. right. Yeah. And they started out from here two years ago. Yeah, 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 exactly. It takes around about sort of 45, 50 minutes to drive down to the tunnel boring machines at the moment. So you can, you can imagine that logistically that puts a lot of time in the day where people are travelling. Um, so, you know, the, the shift pattern we work here is two 12-hour shifts um, on a 24-hour basis. So, you know, we're continually kind of keeping the tunnel boring machines going. As soon as they stop, then um, it does cause a can cause a slight problem on the surface if you stop too long so we want to keep them going as, as much as possible and when, when we do stop them we want to make sure that's in a safe position and safe location which you know our ground investigation works that we've done prior to the start here have identified kind of safe areas where they can actually stop without um, any problems. And these vast uh, ventilation uh, pipes that going into are those temporary or are those, are those or is that no, that's, really that's the temporary that's for the construction right. they get right. extended I mean, if you can imagine the tunnel boring machines are moving all the time, so we've then got to extend the ventilation all the time, we've got to extend the pipes, so all of these steel pipes that you see here, there's an operation that's going on behind, um, behind the, the, the tunnel boring machines to actually make sure that we catch up. Um, obviously there's flexible hoses in between, and so there's, there's a bit of flexibility between when, um, when they've moved on far enough that we actually can put the permanent or semi-permanent um, pipes in place. Um, so well, when's the exciting moment that they're going to break through at the other end? They should break through in uh, January. Obviously there's a, in January next year. Obviously there's a kind of a little bit of leeway in terms of the speed and the, uh, that they're actually going to continue on at. But the, generally what we think is January they'll, they'll be coming out. And are they racing each other? Do they start out at the same time? <laughs> they, they started out uh, differently. They actually caught up with each other at one point in time. And now Florence is now about 250 metres ahead. Um, of, uh, of Cecilia at the moment. So what we will try and do is bring them out at a similar time because if you can imagine the logistics behind um, can only take them out a certain amount of material that we can actually manage in the slurry treatment plant and actually transport out to the Western Valley Slope. So we need to make sure we balance the two together to make sure we balance the logistics behind it. Ah, thank you, that's absolutely fascinating, thank you. I'm with Robert Hutchinson uh, just next to the uh, viaduct being built over uh, the Colne Valley and uh, Robert just just tell me about uh, the scope of this. Okay so the viaduct is going to be 3.4 kilometres long it has a north abutment a south abutment and it has 56 piers and we are effectively building it from our site which is called the south portal site we're building it from north to south now what that means is that uh, before we could even build it we had to make sure we had access right across the Colne Valley so in order to do that we built a haul road for the trucks and across the lakes we created uh, four jetties so that means all the vehicles servicing the piling and the construction of the piers could use the haul road and in the first year of opening the haul road we took uh, over 10,000 vehicles off local roads. So you actually built a whole road across this before you could build a viaduct, isn't that's, that amazing? That's <laughs> correct and that will all be removed once the viaduct is complete so and that is one just to keep uh, in mind our local stakeholders. So what, uh, what we're seeing here is a, a section of the viaduct over this uh, lovely little lake, which uh, apparently has a water ski club uh, where you've just built a, a, a new facility for them. Um, and just uh, t tell me how this works. This is just over land, this section. Yeah, so, so basically the way, the way we're building the viaduct is we are, we are creating, yeah. we're building the piers in situ. And then at our main site, uh, the South Portal site, we're building the deck segments. 
Now these deck segments are up to 140 tonnes in weight. Each one is unique because the viaduct has a gentle curve across the Colne Valley. And what we have to do is we have a, a basically a horizontal crane called a launching girder. And that has made its way north to south and is making its way from north to south from one pier to the next. And, uh, and as it comes to each pier, it puts a segment either side of the pier in situ and then it moves to the next pier and the next pier like a praying mantis working its way down. So each of those segments are cast at our, uh, on our site and they're brought down here in order to meet the launching girder. And, and so they go onto this launching girder which uh, moves forward along with the construction? Yeah, that, that is correct. And you're looking at a completed deck section. So the launching girder has already been here effectively. We've built about 1.5 kilometres of deck so far out of a total of 3.4 kilometres um, in and, total. And you manufacture all these deck sections uh, yourself at, yeah. at the uh, South Portal? Yes, yeah, so our South Portal site has direct access to the M25. So that means that all the aggregates can come straight off the M25 without going into the local community. And then we cast the deck segments at our large factory where we have three cells and each segment is cast next to the next to the one that it will be on on the on the bridge itself using a match casting technique so that when it's actually the bridge is constructed it's a perfect fit and uh, so and, and how long is this taking you when did you start and when do you hope to, to finish well con well construction in terms of the preparations has been happening for a number of years um, we we completed the piling um, at the beginning of this year for all of the segments uh, for, all, for all of the piers rather. Um, we estimate that we will be about halfway complete for the deck um, towards the end of this year and then it will probably take us another 12 months to complete the deck and then following behind the deck we're actually building what's called the robust curb which is preventing the derailing of the terrain and the parapets. That is all following along now that we have the, uh, the deck in place. And uh, just on cue we've got uh, a water skiing uh motorboat kind of, kind of arriving so uh, this essentially uh, is untouched you, you, yes. despite the fact it's got this great big viaduct next to it uh, the lake itself is the same as it yeah, was before. And, the, and this and, and this this really comes down to the relationship we've built with local stakeholders. So if you look across the lake, you can see what was the old Denham Water Ski Club Lake uh, Clubhouse. And what we've done is we've relocated it to this side of the lake. Um, and as you can see by the water skiing going past, it is not impacted. And if you look at the lake, the lake looks fabulous. Fabulous. And and be honest, you're more likely to be deafened by the birds in this area than you are by the construction. Okay, thank you, Robert. That's uh, really helpful. Thank you. So, uh, Mark and I have uh, spent the morning at uh, the HS2 site just near uh, Denham, which is uh, run by a consortium called Align, with two major tasks, one of which is to uh, build a 10-mile-long tunnel, twin bore, of course, and the other is to build uh, a four kilometre long viaduct over Colne Valley and all the waterways there. Um, so, Mark, we had a pretty fascinating morning. What, what, what was your first impression about this? I think my first impression, Christian, was one of the sheer scale of the project. And uh, however many images you see in magazines or online or on television, I think nothing can prepare you for the scale uh, of the, the work that's going on in the Colne Valley. Um, the, the portals to the uh, tunnels are, are breathtaking and the, uh, the viaduct, which is well in, under construction now, 
is is um, a stunning piece of architecture and a really striking feature in the landscape. No, absolutely. I mean, I was struck as we arrived <laughs> and you saw this huge car park in the middle of nowhere that was just uh, in, you know, uh, that what had been fields until uh, the, the construction started. And this seemed to be, you know, about a thousand cars uh, kind of parked there um, and, uh, you know, huge temporary office buildings and then a vast swathe of other buildings, wasn't there? Yes, that's right. All of all of which has appeared in pretty short order, um, and appear, and the plan is that uh, over a period of time, it will all disappear again, and and there will be very little apart from the actual uh, infrastructure features of of HS2. Uh, the idea is to return the environment to the condition it was in before, or in some respects actually enhance it through the. Uh, the, de the deposition of the chalk from the uh, tunnel works, from the tunnel boring, which is designed to uh, leave uh, an enhanced uh, habitat. This created a whole new area. grass, a uh, whole new chalk grassland. Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, they yeah. said where there wasn't really yeah. one before. Yeah, where, it, where, where in fact there was a, there was quite literally a hole in the ground from some exhausted quarry works. So it um, it was um, very impressive, and and also uh, just, I think we're all familiar with the anxieties expressed over many years of residents and neighbours um, worried about being affected by the impact of the whole project. But it was clear that some pretty significant efforts had been made to accommodate the uh, the needs and. Of, of those residents and neighbours. In fact, you could say that, that the whole tunnel itself was there or is there to res uh, to respect the needs of those communities. Yes, absolutely. I I just wondered. One of the things that was apparent to me was that this is a very expensive project, and uh, and I know there's a balance to be had and so on, but there didn't seem to be you know, much attention to limiting those costs and I, I mean I suppose that's not something that we could necessarily pick up on but the, the fact is that you know the costs have overrun you know the, the contract we saw was worth two billion pounds thereabouts which is an extraordinary amount of money um, and uh, yet you know one, one, one could see that it's a very expensive project but nevertheless one, one does wonder whether there is any cost discipline in there. I suppose that you could ask the question whether it's possible to do something like this on the cheap given that you are m building major infrastructure in a developed economy, a developed society with much greater sensitivity around impact on the environment and on communities than would have been the case say in the heyday of 19th century railway construction where you know I think we're br brutally honest those those were not major considerations uh, either communities or the environment the, the, the scheme was seen as as being good in its own right so and of course as soon as you start trying to uh, cut costs then you uh, you raise risks and in fact the number one value of the aligned consortium was safety, uh, both for their own people and for the for the public. So you can see 
um, why these things are expensive. I suppose the, the question that, that, that nevertheless begs is that if you know these things are going to be expensive and that's factored in at the beginning why do you then continue to have increases in costs over and above the very high costs that you'd already anticipated and planned for and I think with HS2 no inquiry no parliamentary investigation or public authority has ever really fully got to the bottom of that issue and um, yes and I, I uh, spent time looking at the minutes of uh, uh, the board meeting for example and uh, uh, they're very heavily redacted you know there, there does seem to be a, a, a slight kind of uh, lack of uh, really kind of uh, I suppose um, uh, scrutiny of this in the next episode of Calling All Stations, we'll bring you the second part of our visit to the HS2 construction sites, this time Old Oak Common in West London. Here's Christian's final thought from the departure lounge. Well, well I was travelling back from Glasgow uh, the other day and uh, because of uh, a train strike, most of the normal trains weren't running, but fortunately... Uh, the open access operator, Lumo, was, and I'd booked a seat for me and my wife, so all well, 12.56 from uh, Glasgow. But when we got on the train, there was an announcement saying that, well, if you don't have uh, a reserved seat, um, you should not travel on this service. And I thought, hold on a sec. Um, you know, this is still a public service. And even if you don't have a seat, you can sit in the corridor. And in fact, inevitably, there were, of course, a few spare seats, even though it was a strike day and the train was fairly full. There were some uh, uh, seats available. So I then queried this on, on Twitter. Um, and uh, because I understand that, you know, you have the right to travel on a train. Uh, you know, unless there's safety reasons, you know, unless there are kind of people hanging out the doors or whatever. But obviously, otherwise, you have a right to get on the train. And there was a big Twitter debate about this um, with some people saying, no, 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 it's, it's fine. And actually, some people pointed out and they were right that because Lumo has decided that it's not a closed service, in other words, it will uh, uh, take uh, people beyond its reservations. Therefore, it gets some of the money, what's called the ORCATS money, the money that is shared between the different operators on a particular route. So that's why it didn't actually make it an absolutely closed service. So it gets some money for this. And uh, this you know, definitely seems to be the case because the, the managing director uh, Martin Gilbert of Lumo then came on the uh, onto Twitter and said uh, and accepted that people without reservations can get on their train. They might not necessarily recommend them to do so, and they might not get a seat, but they can't throw them off the train. And I think that's a very important point because I'm really worried about this idea that you know we no longer have a walk-on railway, but we have to book seats uh, in advance for, for train travel, as you do on the TGV in France, for example. So uh, I think, you know, this is a, a little victory for the passenger. Calling All Stations, the transport podcast with Christian Woolmer. 
is a Cogitamus Limited production. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod. Pod.